back this week. We are in Acts chapter 4. I want to encourage you to turn there. We're going to look at the first portion of this chapter today. Two weeks ago, we watched Peter and John heal a beggar at the temple, and we saw as a result, as as verse 4 of this chapter says, that many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. So we had already heard in chapter 2 how 3,000 people came to the Lord and were added to the church due to Peter and the other apostles' bold proclaiming of the gospel. But here we have 5,000 people, 8,000 people in a very short time. We're reminded to never underestimate the power of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit when we proclaim the good news. So God has gifted his people who share the good news. He grows the church, but then as inevitably happens, the next step in the life of, of the church or a Christian takes place, and we'll see it here in these first several verses of chapter 4. We'll look at the first three together. Would you stand with me as we read chapter 4 of the book of Acts? And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. Let's pray. Father, this is your word. We pray that you would help us to hold it in not only high esteem and great regard, but also, Lord, that we would remember the effect that it has, not only in our life, but in this world. Lord, your spirit will go out. Your word will not return void. Those who call... Upon your name shall be saved, and they will hear the Master's voice. We should have that confidence, even as was said earlier. We, we, being a fearful people, should remember the confidence we can have in the power of the Holy Spirit. So I just pray that for us today, even as we listen to your word. Keep us attentive, keep us awake, keep us interested in, in these words of life and truth. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. Well, so far, like I say, we've seen some amazing things about the early church. We've seen their daily edifying worship in Acts chapter 2. We saw the blessing of growth with many people added in that chapter. And in 3, we, uh, many today would think that that's the full description of the church, is worship and growth. But we can't leave out the third element that we discover here in chapter 4. That is persecution. They all go together in a healthy church. Persecution is the inevitable result of of genuine Christian faith. In John chapter 15, Jesus told his disciples, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you. Because it would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If if they kept my word, they would and will also keep yours. But all these things they will do on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. And so we have this promise, we have this certainty as you become more and more like Christ, the reward is not fame. 
It's not adulation. It's not anything or shouldn't be anything but words of life and, and the amazing results of the Holy Spirit and the conversion of souls through your proclamation of the gospel or it should be persecution. There really is no in-between and yet so many of us find our lives in-between, right? We find our lives in the shadows of what should be these extremes. That's because we're not shining the light of the gospel. We're living like the world so often. As Paul says to Timothy, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Jesus Christ, what does he say there? Will be persecuted. That's an absolute statement. It's a promise, really. It is not a conditional. It's not a should be, ought to be, should expect to be. And so the question for us is, do we regularly face persecution? If not, what does that say about us? What does it say about our boldness in speaking and living out the gospel in our lives? Dietrich Bonhoeffer once wrote, Suffering is the badge of the true Christian, for the disciple is not above his master. We saw that in, in the Gospel of John. Martin Luther counted suffering among the marks of a true church. In fact, one of the best definitions of the church that I've heard is that it is the community of those who are persecuted and martyred for the gospel's sake. If you look at definitions for church in a lot of the church books, what do you find? You don't find something like that, the community of those who are persecuted and martyred for the gospel's sake. You find things like full of small groups and full of thriving ministry offerings and so on. But discipleship is allegiance to the suffering Christ. And it is therefore not at all surprising that Christians should be called upon to suffer. And it's not bad. One author recently wrote, One advantage of being thrown on your back is that you face heaven. If the Spirit reigns in your life, there will be persecution and there will inevitably follow from that a heavenly focus. So let's look more closely at chapter 4. So... What we've got here is this healed beggar whom we met back in chapter 3. They all entered Solomon's porch, which was the open area in the court of the Gentiles, where both Israelite and Gentile first not only entered the, the temple complex, but that's as far as the Gentiles could go. So this was, this was full of activity. Uh, you had around this complex a tall wall that separated, I mean, it that when you walked into the temple, all you saw was what was going on in the temple. You didn't see what was going on outside. So you had the tall wall there, but then along the outside perimeter of this courtyard were these tall, 100-foot-tall white marble columns that held up a roof. It was all called Solomon's Porch, and that's what we're, we're seeing here. It's a cedar roof that surrounded the courtyard. And so we can also just imagine, too, that noises echoing, you know, in this complex. And few would have missed the commotion of this beggar leaping around and, and shouting about this miracle that took place. And I'm struck by the way that Luke lists those who opposed the miracle. In verses 1 through 6, if you look at them, Luke lists no fewer than 11 different individuals or categories of individuals who stood against Christianity. Three of them are in verse 1. 
the priests, the captain of the temple guard, and the Sadducees. You see that there. The priests were the members of the tribe of Levi. There were far more priests in the land of Israel than were needed at any one time at the Jerusalem temple. And, and so what happened was the priests served by rotation. Each division of priests would have a turn to minister at the temple maybe once or twice in their entire lifetime. That's why when, sometimes when we cover the Gospel of Luke and we, we think about Zacharias and, and his opportunity, right, to be drawn to serve incense in the temple, not only was that so rare because it was such a, a unique time for him to be down at the temple in the first place, but for him to be selected by lot to be the one that went in to serve the incense, that was, you were said to be blessed for a lifetime if you were one of those that got selected winning the lottery, right? Well, the point is that when it says Levites, we're not just talking about the people that were down in Jerusalem for their time, for that one week of their lifetime, right? It, it was what we would consider as the career priests of the Levites. These were, these were typically the wealthy priestly class that was established in Jerusalem, stationed there. They were powerful, influential men. And then Luke mentions the captain of the temple guard, and he likely is referring to both the captain himself along with several other guards, and these were not Roman troops. And the captain was not a Roman officer. They were Jewish men. They were chosen by the Sanhedrin for loyalty to the Sanhedrin and for their military skill. And Luke also mentions the Sadducees, who were not a large group, but who were among the wealthiest of the Jews, powerful also in their influence. The Sadducees had recognized long before that if, if Israel was going to survive the occupation of Rome, then they would have to get along with the Romans. And so the Sadducees had established close ties with the Roman government. They were capitulators. They were savvy political men. And in exchange, they were given privileges that weren't shared by the other Israelites. Right? And so Luke is listing what? He's listing three of the most powerful classes of people outside of the Roman governor himself. The career Levitical priests, the military, and the Sadducees. But together with these, in verses 5 and 6, we read on the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas and John and Alexander, all of whom were of the high priestly family. Rulers here refers to people in various positions of authority. These were typically governmental heads, departments. Elders were distinguished older Israelites who held great esteem in especially the various villages and cities. They were men who served as judges in those towns outside of Jerusalem. Elders in Jerusalem itself would have been the same type of thing, respected men. The scribes were teachers of the law. They were the educated men who studied the Old Testament scriptures, who interpreted the the religious and the ceremonial and the civil laws of Israel. And I, I guess the best way to look at it is if the elders were kind of the local 
judging men of the, the, the surrounding villages and towns. You could think of them as municipal court judges. These scribes were like the Supreme Court. They were the ones who proclaimed this is what the law says and means as it applies to the entire nation. There was also Annas, the high priest. He was a true high priest, even though the Romans had removed him from his position several years before and replaced him with his son-in-law Caiaphas. But in Israel, in Judaism, the high priest was high priest for life. And so in the minds of many people, Annas was the true high priest. Caiaphas was the replacement from the Roman perspective, but Annas was the one who, who had really the authority. So you had Caiaphas there, the acting high priest. And finally also John, not John the apostle, but John a priest. And Alexander, both are men of Caiaphas' family. So here's what I want you to understand in these first six verses. Against Peter and against John are the President, the Congress, and the Supreme Court. All arrayed against them. Can you, can you children imagine that? If the President of the United States, members of the U.S. Congress, and the Supreme Court, and other government officials and leaders all came knocking on your door, mad at your parents and your family? What was it that disturbed these people so much? Well, verse 2 says, they were greatly annoyed because Peter and John are teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Now, the fact that Peter and John taught the people was upsetting enough. That was, that was an annoyance all by itself because in Israel, every child, male and female, was expected to go to what amounted to some form of a public education. It was education in the scriptures, which was good. Children were taught the first five books of the Bible. They worked on memorizing scripture. And at the end of this short time of life of teaching and schooling, most returned home, never to go back to school again, both male and female. The girls typically were... Uh, mentored by their mothers and in care of the home. The boys went into the local village and to be apprenticed under some trade. But there were this, this small group, the best of the best, the brightest, of these young men who would continue on to another level of education. And here they learned more of the Old Testament as well as the commentaries at that time on the Old Testament. And finally, after several years, the best of them, the most elite students, became disciples of a rabbi. And their entire focus, think of this as the doctoral program, right, amongst Israel. Their entire focus was to spend every waking moment with the rabbi, learning his habits, his thoughts, imitating his ways, only a precious few would ever themselves earn the title of rabbi. Most would remain disciples. So what you need to know is that the upper schools that produced the disciples of rabbis were typically in the larger cities like Jerusalem. The best students were typically out of the wealthy, well-established, successful families. Just As you can imagine, just like I would today, that, that tends to be the case in our society. It was the case back in ancient Israel. Well, here comes Jesus, who turns this entire system upside down. 
first, he did not go through any of these schools. He apprenticed to a carpenter. And then he's given the title and treated as if he has the authority of a rabbi. Second, no self-suspecting, uh, self-respecting, I should say, not self-suspecting, no self-respecting rabbi would call fishermen and tax collectors and other type of men to be his disciples. If Jesus were truly a rabbi, even going through strange direction to get there, he would at least have gone down to Jerusalem and some of these other schools and picked the best of these students to follow him. But what does he do? In one tiny village, Chorazin, for example, he picks four fishermen, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew, to be his disciples. These men weren't from the city. They weren't from well-established families. They weren't educated. They had long left behind their schooling in that first stage. But that isn't what God looks for in a disciple, right? I think understanding these things helps clarify what we're seeing here in chapter 4. Not only are Peter and John the disciples of a self-proclaimed rabbi, and an executed rabbi, don't forget that as well, one who had been treated and considered a criminal, but they are acting as if they had authority. They were teaching like rabbis in the temple. So when we read that the ruling establishment is greatly annoyed because they are teaching the people, let's let's understand that that word translated greatly annoyed is probably a massive understatement. And second, they are proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. The other thing that bothered at least some of the leaders, especially the Sadducees, was that John and Peter are teaching resurrection. Resurrection of Jesus at that. First, the Sadducees no longer believed in a resurrection. They had become so liberal as a group that they were leaving behind many of the beliefs that were central to Judaism. Not only were John and and Peter preaching resurrection, they were preaching resurrection of the very one that had been crucified months earlier, right? The, The one whose ministry, by his teachings, had threatened to upset the entire comfortable establishment of these leaders. And so we look at verse 13 there in the same chapter. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were uneducated. Now you understand why that's in there. Uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. These were the same things that had bothered them about Jesus. Nevertheless, Jesus had possessed authority. Nevertheless, people had followed him. And here, the same thing is happening. Peter and John speaking with boldness, it's causing the leaders to be astonished. Some of your translations have to marvel, which we need to understand does not mean admire, but rather in that same kind of astonishment of how dare they, right? How dare they have the gall to be doing that? And that's why I like verses 7 and 8. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, by what power? Or by what name did you do this? 
then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. And if you stop there, Luke tells us what gave Peter and John their right and authority. It was being filled with the Holy Spirit. And I am reminded of the fact that you do not need a seminary education to share the gospel. There's profit to formal education. There's profit to deep study of God's word. The apostles themselves had spent three years with the best teacher the world has ever known, but the truth is that the Holy Spirit and the word of God are all that you need to tell the world about Jesus and be equipped for righteousness. But be prepared for opposition. Be prepared for the world to ask you, what right, by what right have you to say these things? What authority do you have? You weren't educated at Harvard. What are you, what are you telling me about life? In the world's economy, fishermen don't tell the ruling class what to do. And the world will do everything it can to dissuade you from your task. It will use wealth. You know, you middle class, you lower class, you don't, you don't have the right to tell us successful upper class people the way to live life. Look at, look at us. Look at what we've accomplished. What have you accomplished? Nothing. Sometimes it will use raw power and intimidation to keep you from calling them to account. And that's what we see in Acts 4. The authorities intimidating, intimidating the disciples. In the Greek, there's an emphasis that doesn't come out as strongly in the English, but it indicates that when the priests and the captain of the guard and the Sadducees came upon Peter and John, they didn't just step out from the back of the crowd and, and kind of say, come over here. One moment Peter and John are talking and boldly proclaiming, and the verse says that they were grabbed forcefully, is what the Greek says. It's a phrase that in English is sometimes translated as arrested. Taken away. Find out they were thrown in jail. Gripped with the death grip upon their arms is, is kind of that image in the Greek. It's like this, come here, you know. <laughs> the leaders could have talked to the two disciples that afternoon, but throwing them in jail for the evening was meant to frighten them. Let them see what would be in store for them if they continue to stir up the crowds like they're doing. Let them have a chance to sample a cold night in jail and, and eat prison rations. See if they'd like to do that for the rest of their life. Maybe their boldness will melt away. Well, what happens? Peter and John remain bold. And this causes the leadership. What in the world is going on? And if Christianity is true, it is the greatest message in the world. But we are so often afraid to proclaim it. Verse 21 says, after they had further threatened them, they let them go. Finding no way to punish them because of the people. Remember the 5,000? It says, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. 
If there were further threats, what I was thinking as I read verse 21, if there were further threats, there must have been earlier threats. And I suppose that's what's suggested in verse 18 when we read, so they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. You see, we have such a mild, in some ways a mild retelling and summary of these events. But further threats means earlier threats. You know, arresting them means gripping them, like I said, and, and dragging them to prison, throwing them in. We know what they would want to do with them, what they already had done with Jesus. And we have to learn from the example of Peter and John. We have to expect opposition. And we have to expect it most when? What have we read in the earlier chapters? How wonderfully things were going in the church. 3,000 converts, 5,000 converts. You see, sometimes we have the expectation of, oh, it's going so wonderfully. If it would just never end. But the, the fact of the matter is that if God is truly blessing a church hand in hand with growth and worship, go persecution. When you are abiding in Christ, relying on him, though, he will give you the words to say, just as Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. He gives he, a formal reply. He says he had been arrested because of the consequences of healing someone. Was that so bad? Verses 8 through 10, rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel. See, I, you see what's happening here? Peter is, he's taking this moment, he's, he's treating it as an opportunity. You know, if we're doing this for a, a good deed, and are, are you really wondering how we did this? Let me tell you. In fact, let me, let me proclaim the gospel to you right here in the midst of this trial, right? Let it be known to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, by the way, whom you crucified, same thing we heard back in chapter 2, Peter's being consistent, whom God raised from the dead, they had just been so annoyed that they've been preaching the resurrection. Why not mention it again in the trial? By him, this man is standing before you well. And that's what Peter, I think, is meaning in 1 Peter 3 when he says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. I think this is the best application of Peter's comment here in 1 Peter 3 is what happened in Acts chapter 4. He honored Christ the Lord as holy. He's asked not to speak anymore by the most powerful men in the nation. And he uses that opportunity to give a defense for the hope that he has. Yet do it with gentleness, Peter says, and respect. Having a good conscience. I'm not saying don't be bold. And I, I know Peter's example is be bold. There, 
there's even a humorous irony in there, right? The very things that they've been told not to do, they continue to do because they would rather obey God than obey man. But you can still do that with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, when those very men say, what are you talking about? It's the very thing we told you not to say. It's what we don't want to hear. When they revile you, when they slander you for the good behavior in Christ, you will not be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that be God's will, than for doing evil. According to 2 Timothy 4, Paul tells Timothy, At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me. He strengthened me. So, friends, remember that too. There, there will be times when you're like a Peter and and the people are really restrained and, and afraid to do something to you because of the support you have outside. But there will be other times where you are all alone. There doesn't seem to be any support at all, like a Paul. But remember that the Lord stands by you and strengthens you. So that through me, Paul says, the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. How would we respond in these types of situations? How do we respond? Don't we want to avoid trouble? If a person is intimidated, usually they say as little as possible, hoping to be released, get back to their business. You know, if we were in Peter's shoes, what would we say? Would we just be silent? Would we answer the questions that we were asked, hoping that we'd be released and then go back, celebrate with the church that we were, and then talk about, you know, maybe we need to be a little bit quieter, not draw as much attention? How many of us want to get the established leadership upset at us? Do we try to fly under the radar? If we're challenged, do we come up with just the right things to say, the minimal amount of things to say? Are we careful not to offend? When we encounter the harsh words of the world about our faith, is it that moment where we go, well, this person isn't interested? We say that in our mind. We don't want to keep offending them. We just want to get out of the conversation as soon as possible and get back within the four walls of, of the church, which is all about worship and growth and unity and peace. But that's not Peter's reaction. He is a servant of the living God, and he has the greatest message in the world to deliver. And the difference is when Peter is faced by the most powerful people of Israel, he thinks to himself, in all of my life, I have never had a chance like this. I mean, look at it. The priests, the captain of the guard, the Sadducees, the rulers, the elders, the teachers of the law, Annas, Caiaphas, John, Alexander, others. I will never do better than this again. 
If I had done a great advertising campaign, I would not have gotten all of the nation's leaders to come into one room at one place all at the same time. And here they are. This is a divine appointment. And my personal challenge to you is to start thinking that way. Will you see that as torture and everyone's looking at me? Or will you see it as opportunity? And Peter's answer was simple. Jesus was crucified, rose from the dead, and the purpose of God was revealed even in the midst of persecution. Listen again to his words. If we're being examined today for this good deed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. By him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Your answer can be simple, too. Again, there is no seminary education needed to speak the word of God and power. You need, though, to know the word. So start reading the Bible consistently. Memorize scripture. In the gospel is power unto salvation. And the world doesn't like to hear about these things. It doesn't want to hear about the resurrection of Christ and what that implies. It doesn't want to hear about God's purposes and the call to confess and repent from sin. And when you begin to proclaim those things, those offensive things, the world will revile you, it will laugh at you, it will scorn you, it will hate you. And yes, it will persecute you. Remember when we read together Psalm 1, the picture of the solitary person, the godly man, walking against the tide of the world, of the scorners and the mockers and the wicked, right? The broad path. Remember I said at the time, it's not that that picture we have sometimes is uh, like in Pilgrim's Progress where uh, Christian goes and he finds the, the narrow gate and he's all by himself and he walks through, will I walk through the narrow path? While the whole world, the city of destruction is walking the broad path to destruction. I said, let's not think of that. Let's not even think of it like two sides of a street and you've got one sidewalk going this way and it's a big wide sidewalk and you are on a narrow sidewalk with a few other Christians on this side and you look at the over here. So the better picture of the scriptures is the broad path of destruction is coming your direction. And you're trying to get through this crowd of people that is wanting to carry you with them, is wanting to take you and turn you around and go through on the broad path of destruction. And if they can't get you to turn around with them, what are they going to do? They're going to push you into the road in the face of traffic. Get hit by a car. That's more what we get from Psalm 1. That's really what we're looking at here. It is a fight for life. And the world is, behind the world is the devil and all the principalities and powers of darkness that will stand against you because nothing is so offensive to the natural man as teaching that he cannot save himself, 
that he cannot choose his own way of salvation, and that he, the only way, truth, and life is through Jesus Christ. I'm reminded of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. I often use this example. Isaiah is told, go, say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, their ears heavy, blind their eyes. Let's see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. These are gloomy predictions. This is my life calling. My vocation is going to be to make everybody mad at me. That's really the, the, the summary of Isaiah's calling. And his response is the same one I would have had. Lord, for how long? How long is that going to be the case? Because I can endure for a year, three years. Certainly not my entire career, right? My entire life. Is it going to be that way? And God doesn't answer with saying, go speak on my behalf and 5,000 people are going to listen. I'm going to make you a super missionary. No, the result is not always what Peter and John experienced. Sometimes it's what God tells Isaiah. Keep speaking until the cities lie waste without inhabitant and the houses are without people and the land is a desolate waste. Keep talking. Keep serving. You've been called to a task. Just like Peter and John. Just like you and me. We are called to a task. It's not easy for Isaiah when the people don't listen to him. When he declares God's word, there would be no softening, no repenting, no turning, no lasting national revival. The thanks he would get would be a martyr's death. But how does he do it? How do Peter and John do it? After being placed into prison and threatened and intimidated by the influential men of their day, all of them knew that they had been sent by God. There's great power and confidence in that knowledge. Whenever Isaiah felt discouraged and began to waver, he would go back to that vision of God upon his throne. He'd remember who's truly sovereign. When Peter began to lose faith, he would remember his years with Jesus and the fact that Jesus was alive, preparing a place for him. When you get discouraged... Remember how God has provided for you. Remember that Christ is risen, even now prepares a place for you. Cling to that surety and that commission, that calling by God. Think of Paul languishing in that cold and lonely prison, dragging chains perhaps on dusty floors, or at least being alone, right? Everybody abandoning him. Shortly before his death, he writes to Timothy, I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, a teacher, that's why I'm suffering, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. I know Jesus. And I'm convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. What Paul, looked, in looking around, saw was not the cold stone walls and the promise of imminent death. He didn't see the threats behind 
the authorities and what's going to happen to you if you keep talking this way. Or the fact that you're going to lose, you know, respect, reputation. You're going to be that Bible thumper type of person. Now what he saw was the future. What he saw was an eternity in God's presence and being told, well done, good and faithful servant. What he saw was God's promises that last forever. Remember those words of Christ I quoted at the beginning in John 15. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hates you. If you were of the world, if you were walking that broad path to destruction with the world, it would be sitting with you, joking with you, laughing with you. It would love the very fact that you were a part of its group. But you are not of the world. You are walking the other direction because I chose you out of the world. I turned you around. And you are walking against the flow of traffic. And therefore, the world hates you. And so remember the word that I said to you. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. But friends, also remember the part that says, if they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Remember that the fruit of your labor will be, first of all, and most important, God's pleasure in you. But second, it will be the fact that God has used you, appointed you, to proclaim the good news, and those who recognize the shepherd's voice will hear what you say, and it will be the aroma of life to them. Yes, many will not listen. Yes, you will face persecution, but the point is that you need only to be filled with the Holy Spirit and speak the words of God as Peter and John did, as Paul did, and Christ's sheep will come to him through your faithfulness. Friends, it is time, I think, to look for opportunities. Be bold. Be faithful. Remember your purpose. Look past the moment. Don't be intimidated by the person that's angry at you. But glorify God by proclaiming the good news of reconciliation because this person needs the words of life. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your good word and I thank you for the good news of salvation that you've given us to proclaim to the world. Thank you for the example of Peter and John who, when they are intimidated by the most influential and powerful people of the land, instead continue to remain faithful. They look at it as not torture, but as opportunity. So Father, I pray for that same kind of boldness in our life. There was a Peter who denied you. There was a Peter who was weak, did not want to originally follow what was clearly your plan. But Lord, you changed his heart, you changed his mind, you filled him with your spirit, you made him understand the truth, and he became such a powerful witness for your kingdom. I pray that that would be the same for us. If there are any of us who have been denying you by our words and actions when we've had opportunities where we've been fearful 
where we desire to maintain our reputation or our image with our friends, where we've thought we don't have the time to, to take to really fully answer this person that's asked us something that, that could be an opportunity for the gospel. Lord, help us to slow down. Help us to be brave and remember that what's truly before us is eternity and your pleasure and this person's life. It's in Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen.